Shrinkwrap Radio number 830, Law Professor Gaia Bernstein on Recovery from Addictive Technologies. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Gaia Bernstein, is a law professor, director of the Institute for Privacy Protection, and co director of the Gibbons Institute for Law, Science, and Technology at the Seton Hall University School of Law. We're going to be discussing her forthcoming book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. Now, here's the interview. Gaia Bernstein, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I'm really glad to have you here. We did suffer through some uh, technical difficulties, uh, partly due to the fact that I'm under the weather, which listeners who are familiar with what my voice sounds like may recognize that somehow a frog got in there and uh, haven't got him out yet. yet. (laughs) Uh, So I'm so pleased to have you uh, on the show You've got a new book uh, coming out soon called Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. And this is a topic near and dear to my heart, I must say. Uh, To me, this seems like an especially timely book. And it's a topic that I've spoken about a number of times on this podcast series you know, sometime after it was revealed, and, and you probably know what what show it was that this the information came out that neuropsychologists have been working for video gaming uh, platforms and for networking platforms to make them addictive. In other words, they're using brain science to weaponize their services against us against you and me and our children. And as a clinical psychologist, I'm shocked (laughs) that some of my fellows have been bought off. Where are their moral or professional standards? Now, as you see, I'm pretty emotional about this. You're an attorney, and so I get to come from being emotional right now. But as an attorney, you have to play the long game, right? You can't afford to to get too emotionally upset. That is true. Lawyers are supposed to represent their clients and keep their distance from what is going on. Um, Although I think for me, 
And for many people is the idea that an entire industry that we thought was the the do-gooder industry, the industry that will connect the world, uh, Google said do no evil, these are the industries that hired the psychologists in order to manipulate us and to extend our time online. Yeah, and um, it is shocking. So how did you learn to control your emotions? <laughs> because this is an emotional topic. And how did you learn to play the long game, so to speak? Well, I think I'm still learning. But I'm actually, I, I'm a professor, so I do less of the day-to-day litigation. What I'm do, I do most of the time is look at the bigger picture and try to put the pieces together rather than do the actual litigation of going to court against uh, companies. And I think part of it really affected the way I wrote the book because when I started out thinking about this, I suspected that technology companies were behind it, but I didn't really want to say it. So I thought I should just, the year was about 2017, I started an outreach program for students and parents. I spoke to parents and I thought if people just knew, understood how much time we're spending online, it will be okay and things will change. I didn't really think that one day this will get so far, go so far that basically this will be the same kind of battle zone we've seen in the past with cigarettes, with food. Uh, I... I guess I was much more optimistic when I yeah, started thinking yeah, about this topic. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the cigarettes. I just recently, coincidentally, watched the film. Oh, don't forget the, t- the title now. Uh, I rehearsed it in my mind earlier. Uh, the film that was about the the bitter fight in the tobacco industry and uh, how there was one scientist who was willing to come forward and. Uh, his life was pretty much wrecked as a result of being willing to be a whistleblower. And the tobacco industry executives got up in front of Congress and lied their faces off. Just lied their faces off. No, these are not addictive. We don't, you know, we don't make them addictive. <laughs> and it's such a parallel to, to what we're dealing with now. Right. I think it's a fascinating parallel. And at first, people say, you know, how can you compare the two? You know, cigarettes are obviously so bad and technology is good as well. And I think it's interesting to compare the two exactly because of that, because we know now how bad cigarettes are, how much damage they can inflict. And still, it took so many years to get to a point where we, basically there were smoke-free zones, that people won litigation against the tobacco companies. So basically the first studies came out in 1950s and the tobacco industry completely uh, denied any blame and I, they funded their own research showing that cigarette has nothing to do with yeah. lung cancer. And it just kept going on and on. And eventually, it was 1964, 
over a decade later that the Surgeon General announced that smoking is a health hazard. And still, for decades, litigants won, they lost their legal cases against tobacco companies. Yeah. Because... And that's, that's actually, I think, a central theme that connects everything I talk about in the book, because cigarette companies blamed smokers for choosing to smoke. They said they're not responsible. It was not their choice. It was the smoker's choice. Yeah. So I think the, the parallels are fascinating. They are. And, yeah. And, and the fight still goes on. I mean, we, we've only partially won that fight with the cigarette companies because they came out with vaping, you know, as the latest, uh, the latest uh, twist on that. And, uh, and also they, they upgraded their efforts in third world countries and, uh, and have raised a horrible health havoc in other parts of the world. So it's a, uh, it's something about the power of money, big money, big, big money, and the ability of big money to corrupt. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. And I think there's some kind of format we can see beyond what's happening with technology. There's something that tends to happen when you have a, a powerful industry that produces a harmful product, whether uh, it is uh, cigarettes or junk food or technology which hooks us without us ever choosing to be hooked in a certain way and whenever this happens we go into what is called i call the science wars basically the industry denies all of it because their revenues are dependent on it and then there's a long fight trying to prove because sometimes proof is complicated is did cigarettes cause the problem or food or maybe something else? And it goes on for many, many years. And there's sort of a cycle that happens. The first thing that happens is often the companies say, well, we, even if there's a problem, we have a solution. So cigarettes companies came out with a filtered cigarettes yeah. or, yeah. or, the tech industry with privacy. They came up with uh, Facebook had privacy cafes to help you. You could set, just figure it out. You know, how do you change those settings to get the privacy you want? That's that's a nightmare trying to figure that out. <laughs> right, because they don't really want to, for you to figure it out. Right, right, yeah, and you know the science wars. I don't know that I'd run across that term before. But it's really important. Uh, it's so critical. And it's so uh, pertinent to the time that we're in because right now we're, you know, okay, you've got your scientists, we've got our scientists. You know, who are you going to believe? That's basically their attitude, right? We've got our science, and this is what our science shows, and your science, who are you going to believe? Well, right now we're at a cultural place, unfortunately, in this country and in this world where the idea of truth is being challenged and uh, is on the chopping block, if you will. So right, it's, absolutely. It's, it's, it's got to be, I mean, there, we're in the midst of cultural wars. I'm jumping ahead in terms of my planned 
trajectory for our conversation, but I just feel propelled to go there. Um, This cultural wars that we're in right now, I mean, it casts a great shadow over the whole topic that you're talking about, I think. I agree. I think a lot of this is about what the truth is and what lies are going to be told to protect corporate revenues. And and the problem is that really, if you want to come up with sound laws and policy, you do need to know the underlying science. And until things stabilize and are accepted, and often you need to have, I mean, it's helpful to have professional organizations or medical organizations or a, a prestigious journal like in New England Journal of Medicine, make pronouncements, but at the end, you really need uh, strong governmental organizations to say this, we've had these experts sit together, this thing is harmful, and from now on, we need to decide what the laws should be to protect people from this. And and it's it, it, it gets complicated because if you don't get to this point and you start delaying, lots of harm is caused in the meantime. And I think going to the technology overuse issue, we already have a whole generation of children that has spent at least a decade in front of screens. So saying we're going to wait until we determine all of this for sure may be too late for many, many kids. Yeah, I, I'm, and, and it's not just kids. You're a mother, you have three children. And in your book, you point out that uh, your children were born into this, right? This was all already happening. And so as a very interesting and uh, frustrating for you as a mother to uh, figure out, well, what are you going to do? And you tried talking to other parents and getting seeing if they are experiencing what you're experiencing. It's not... Just an issue with children, though, as as you point out in your book. In fact, you point out that that you have, str- knowing everything that you know about this, knowing how manipulative the whole thing is, it's very hard for you personally to limit your screen time. Tell us about that if you're of a confessional mode. <laughs> Sure. So I think there's a reason why I've been writing about technology all a lot all my life. I basically I'm I, I like it. I, you know I like using email. I like using Facebook, and I like it too mm. much. And I, I think I found myself um, I would say around 2013, 14, sitting to write in the morning, putting my laptop in front of me. These are my best writing time, and. Two hours later, I realized I've done nothing. And why did I do nothing? Maybe I answered some emails. I started surfing online. I answered some texts. And I felt like I was not really in control of, of the situation. Yeah. And and even now that I know better, I often forget. And I, I do, when I want to write, I take my cell phone and I put it on 20 minutes increments in which I swear to myself, I'm not going to look at anything. And when the, it rings, I check my email and then I go back again. 
And this, I think there are more sophisticated ways of doing that, but I just know that I, I cannot really help myself and I have a lot to do. But, you know, I'm thinking of, of earlier writers who didn't have these kinds of distractions. They had other kinds of distractions, but not these very addictive ones. And they trained themselves, you know, many were uh, morning writers. I, I'm a morning writer as well. I just don't think clearly later on in the day. And um, so those people often found it to be a struggle, but they would, you know, I'm thinking of some of the famous authors, you know, uh, uh, novelists and so on, and they would, you know, the first four hours of the day was they were going to be isolated, family stay away, nobody call me, nobody do anything, because this is my writing time. And this is how things got accomplished. This is how we got great thoughts and, and great books out to the public. I, I think obviously still there are many great books coming out. I think it's just it's just harder. And I think mm. what happens to us is we just blame ourselves. That's our natural tendency. And the reason this happens is that we know that when we need to, we can concentrate. So if I have a conference paper I have to finish, it has to be submitted. I, I am going to work very hard and I'm not going to be distracted. And just because we know we can sometimes do it, but we don't do this all the time, we blame ourselves because something must be wrong with us for not being able to stop ourselves. Yeah. I, I think a big reason I wanted to write the book is that I think this constant self-blame, people blaming themselves, uh, parents blaming themselves because their kids are online and they cannot do anything about it is something people need to realize and they're having a hard time realizing that even if they read the papers and they know tech companies are manipulating them, they forget and they still think that the battles have to be fought at home and internally when they sit in front of the computer and I think one of my goals here is to talk about the fact that if we're to blame in any way is by not doing enough in the external world, not by not being hard enough on ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've had the experience of, um, I guess I, I want to blame some parents some of the time because... If you spend much time out in the world, you know, let's say in uh, shopping centers, uh, a mall, something like that, and you see parents and kids in strollers, such a high percentage of the time, the parent is looking at a screen and the child is struggling to get their attention. The child may be whining, crying, acting up. And, and the parent is just, maybe what the parent has done is they've gotten them a little, a little toy phone <laughs> or even, even a low-level device, uh, not quite an iPhone, but a cheaper wannabe kind of thing. And before you know it, that kid is locked into that. So that gets them off the parent's back. Yeah, the thing is, and I think we felt this a lot during the pandemic, It's it, it, it becomes 
so much of the norm it's hard to resist i live in manhattan and i since my kids were small we go out to dinner a lot and it was hard at the beginning because you have three children grabbing food water is spilling everywhere and last night i went out with my daughter she's 15 now and we walked into our favorite restaurant and the the first thing we saw was this family with kids and the kids were with their ipads and obviously it is exactly what you're describing and it's much much easier to do it this way and if you start seeing it all around you it just you, you're not sure if it, if you can fight it anymore and at the, <laughs> during the pandemic it was impossible i mean parents had no child care they had to work at home and i think something sort of broke they could just not manage this anymore uh, taking the screens away and I, in some ways i'm not sure we can go back to what happened before that yeah unless i thought, things I thought that was that was a, a fascinating uh part of your book is drawing attention to that that the that this technology became so necessary during the pandemic and uh, necessary and, and valuable as a way to survive it as a way for many people to work away from work to work at home uh, but with a cost I have to say because um, uh, daddy's working I'll I'll be out in an hour but right now, this hour is mine. I've got to work here. Go play. You know, you keep the door shut and play with your toys. Some version of that. So it's such a push-pull situation. Yeah, I think it's very hard. And also, it's so lucrative to just give up. It's so easy to just... just it's it also, I think part of it is because... I. I know I, as I mentioned, I ran this outreach program for parents, which I talked to lots of parents from 2017. And I know lots of parents tried very hard. You know, they would yeah. limit time, uh, phones and meals. They would limit them at bedtime. They would put apps, but it didn't really work. Screen time just went up. Maybe it worked with small kids, but not with once the kids got to middle school. So I think when you feel powerless, then it's much easier to, easier to say, okay, I'll just let them be with the screens. And the big step that I am promoting in the book is that this is a form of neglect, not you know personal neg child neglect, but a generational neglect. You yeah, leave yeah. a whole generation of children in front of their screens saying we cannot do anything. What I'm trying to say is, Yes, it's very, very difficult to use self-help to change anything. But there's lots of things that we can do to change things in a more systematic way. Yeah, yeah. It's a structural issue. Uh, a society, with the way our society has evolved is currently a structural issue and needs to be addressed at that area, at that level, Right. Right. I think there has, first of all, I, th I think the good news is there's already a lot happening. It just, sometimes it's hard to see the forest from the trees because the different movements are very different. So that we see things. Um, first of all, the first thing that happened, I would say, which is really important, is that people are aware of the problem. And that's not a small thing. 
because when I started speaking to parents in 2017, people were surprised. They, they all thought, oh, it's just something is wrong with my child. And just realizing that this is something that affects lots of people, being aware of it is, is a very important step towards solving it. And beyond that, we are already seeing things changing in um, in other ways. We can see small-scale things happening. You know, some schools, for example, prohibit cell phones, even during yeah. research. Right. We had a lot of laws that uh, limit screen time and daycare settings. And there have been a lot, and I think there's, and there have been lots of attempts so far unsuccessful in big legislations like uh, social media, addiction laws. And I think that it's important to note that failure is not necessarily failure. Like we talked about cigarettes, things go on for a long time. They may fail, but then they get attention. Pressure is exerted on the industry and things eventually change. So there are many legal routes I could talk about which in which we are already seeing action taking place and the fa- and it's just it's not going to be a magic pill. There's not going to be one law, one Supreme Court case that's going to change everything. It's not yeah. going to happen like that. Right. It's, right. But it's already happening in many directions. Yeah. Well in fact you're a lawyer. We didn't we didn't talk about your current job, you might want to tell us about that because it seems like you've positioned yourself, I don't know whether by accident or or happenstance or, or what, but it seems like you've positioned yourself to be in a pivotal role to get to to be able to address these sorts of issues. How did that come about? Tell us what your job is and how it came about. So it's I basically have I've been an academic writing about technology for years, and I was always interested in something a bit different from many of my colleagues. I was interested in how people use technologies and how how it affects their lives. And when I started noticing, it, 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 I think people everything starts personally and then become, at least for me, becomes part of my work. When I started noticing. How I remember one day I basically I walked out of a yoga class in York City and maybe I was in a different mood. I went into a coffee shop and I stood in line and I didn't take my phone out, which was unique because that's what we usually do. And so I looked around me and there were 15 people standing in line and n- nobody was looking up. And I thought, this is so strange. I've not noticed that before. Wow. Yeah. And 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 then I started, you know, you just start noticing more and more what is happening around you. And I noticed, for example, I would go to see my kids end of the year shows, and I could not really see them because all the rows in front of me were holding iPads and cameras. Nobody's really interacting with with a the show. They're all looking through their cameras, making sure they're recording it. And around that time, um, my Law School, Seton Hall Law School, um, started uh, Institute for Privacy Protection, and I became the director. Mm -hmm. And the natural thing would have just 
to do programs about privacy. And this was 2016, but I was already thinking about that. So I decided I want to go to schools to teach kids at the age when they get their first cell phones about privacy, but not just privacy, about what I thought was this really important thing, how to balance online and offline life. And so my lot, I created this program and my law students went and taught the kids and I went to speak to the parents. And from speaking to the parents, I I think I, I, I first of all learned how much at first they had no realization what the issue was, but, and they just, when they did, they wanted to know how to fix it. And at first I was actually going to write a different book. I was going to write this book about uh, how, uh, we should increase awareness through legal tools. And But after about a year or two, it became clear that the parents were desperate, that nothing was really, really working. And, and around that time, evidence started coming out from Silicon Valley, the different whistleblowers, first Tristan Harris, later Francis uh, the uh, Facebook uh, whistleblower and Francis Hogan and data started piling up about the harms, especially for children. And I realized that the book has the book I'm going to write. It has to be different. It has to be a book which is more about what can be done legally, how we can exert pressure on technology companies to redesign their products for spaces on governments to enact laws because this is not going to happen by itself. Once I realized how manipulative technology companies were, I thought I have a double job here. First of all, to document what's already happening. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to lawyers who were doing class action litigations. I looked everywhere to see where action was taking place. And then I drew a roadmap for where things are starting out and what else what else could be done, realizing that in many ways things are urgent. Yeah, yeah. And um, the lead, I think, may happen in other countries first, as you point out. I'm aware that Apple Computer, I've been a big Apple fan for many years, uh, <clears throat> although we're having to rethink that <laughs> along with everything else. But uh, they're really being called to account in a number of European countries around uh, uh, privacy issues and other kinds of issues uh, of... Uh, their, you know how they structure their charges, all of that, and uh, and so Apple and other countries, uh, other companies, technology companies in particular, are being confronted by this new globalization that we have, <laughs> where other countries are important too. They're not all Americans out there, <laughs> and they have their own government, their own rules, their own. Uh, biases and all of that, and and if they're large enough, they can exert some real weight. You know, like take China for example. If you want to sell your devices in our country, where 
You know, we have enormous uh, power. Uh, you're going to have to uh, march to our tune. Yes, definitely. I think the fact that um, other countries are more advanced in regulating, regulating tech companies does have an impact. We saw this with privacy in Europe. Uh, the GDPR privacy laws in Europe are much more advanced than here. But then we got a law in California, which is much more advanced than any U.S. law beforehand, which was inspired by the European laws. I think what's interesting to see that there's also already some regulation taking place about for technology overuse. So there's something called loot boxes, which is something that kids know a lot about, adults know less. I know less. And I encountered that I encountered that term in your book. I meant to go online and look it up. I felt like, well, I have some vague understanding. What is a loot box? <laughs> So a loot, a loot box is a very, very common feature in online games. And so let's say you play a game and you have a character and you want to get extra strengths. So you can play and play and play and eventually you might be able to get enough points or maybe you, you're impatient and you, you, want to get, uh, you, you want to get it right away. So loot boxes are basically these, um, they take different shapes, but you don't see what's inside. So you get them and inside you might get the sword you want or the extra powers you want, but you don't know what's going to be inside. So, oh, and oh. so it's happened, a like, surprise package. It, and right, so, surprise I mean, package. I, I can see the, mani mani the manipulative power of that in terms of, oh, there's a goodie in here. You don't know what it is. It could be very wonderful. So it's essentially gambling. Exactly. It is gambling because uh, online, online companies basically let people buy these. So the moment kids can spend money on this, and they, some of them spent lots of money using their parents' credit card. That really raised the alarms. And so many countries in Europe uh, prohibited or restricted loot um, boxes. The, in the United States, the Federal Trade Commission held a workshop. It has not taken action yet. There is a lot of litigation against uh, loot boxes. Again, mm. not necessarily successful yet. But if you look at the documents of the litigation, they're not just talking about the money aspect. They're talking about how these games are addictive. So if we take loot boxes, the model on which it operates is a model that's all over the Internet. It's called the intermittent reward model. Yeah. The idea is that, that once we, it, if we get a reward once in a while, we don't know when we get it, we're going to release more of dopamine, the pleasure-enhancing neurotransmitter. And so if that's very much like the slot machine. If you take the slot machine, why do people keep pulling and pulling the lever? They never know when they'll get money, so they keep going. So many of the um things we see online 
are operating on the same thing, whether it's uh, likes we get on Facebooks or um, if people go on Tinder and they swipe and they don't know if they're going to get a match. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So the expose the discussion of the loot boxes is it's sort of the low-hanging fruit because the kids and money, it's easy to get it outlawed. But it's exposing a lot of what's going on here. Yeah. And I think that is really the first step. And we can see in actually in Canada, there's already a very important uh, case against Fortnite, which is not just looking at loot boxes, but it's all basically suing Fortnite for being addictive as cocaine. Yeah, wow, yeah. Um, again, I have to uh, hold my colleagues in psychology accountable. I mean, complex schedules, intermittent complex schedules of reinforcement go all the way back to Skinner, B.F. Skinner, and his his followers. And, you know, and they were able to control animals to get them to do extraordinary things and to basically get so addicted that they would work themselves to death for these on these reinforcement schedules. And again, these insights and tools are being turned against us. So, but I'm glad that you're not discouraged and that you are going to keep plugging away because uh, we need people like you at the, at the forefront of this, and uh, do you ever are you ever concerned that somebody might some of these people might realize? Wait a second, she's kind of a threat to our industry. That they might come after you one way or another. Well, I think uh, the people who were the biggest threat to the industry were the people who revealed information. Um, the whistleblowers, Francis oh. Hogan, Tristan Harris. I think at this point, there's so many people working together. Maybe people do not see it, but uh, the moment, I think in a way, my book is coming out in a good, good timing oh, yeah. because there's a lot of evidence, a lot of scientific evidence. There is a lot of evidence coming from the companies themselves, and there are lots of great people, lawyers, legislators, uh, parents, educators, already working. So I think I see my role here is of basically drawing the whole pictures, showing the options, but I'm coming at a moment that I think the movement is already in motion. I'm not here, the lone person, you know, saying what's going on. Uh-huh, good, good. Um, what's your hope? Well, who's your audience for this book? Who do you want to to buy this book? And why should they want to do that and, and read it? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think I would have answered this question differently before the pandemic than after the pandemic. I think after during the pandemic, especially during lockdown, lots of people felt very vividly what it means to be in front of screens all the time. They felt it in their bodies. They felt uh -huh. it in their mood. And if before the pandemic, it was more parents who were concerned about their kids, I think there are lots of adults now who just do not want this. 
but they not know how to stop this. So I think there's a more general audience book than it would have been if I had published this four years ago. And so, so yeah, so, so one group is just people wanting change and parents wanting change. And then there's the group of many people who are doing work that's related to this, whether they are teachers. I mean, what's going on in the classroom is very concerning. The general policy is to have as much technology in the classroom as possible. And is this the right decision or not? This is something uh, education policy has been going only in one direction for over a decade now. And I think there are lots of decisions that could be decided on a federal level, on a state level, and an individual school level. Um, I think that also the people working in the technology industry hopefully want to do better. And uh, lawyers, of course, policymakers. Yeah. And there are lots of professionals whose work is related to this. Well, good. Yeah, I think it's a it's a, it's a book that probably everybody needs to read and should read. And it's, it's not just children. I mean, we need to uh, we all need to be aware of this dynamic of um, how it's seductively easy to to hang out with our screens. I know somebody, uh, I have a friend who's about my age and, uh, and their adult son came to visit. And, oh, boy, this would be, oh, time for a great sharing, right? And they, uh, they find out what's going on in their lives, et cetera. Uh, but, and they could do that around watching sports on TV. But what happened was, that my friend's adult kids were communicating with their friends on their iPhone about the game that everybody was watching on the TV. So that, in fact, for the parents, you know, and this is an age-old thing of parents feeling, oh, you never write, we don't hear from you, you don't call. Well, now here they are, but they're not with you. Yeah. They're not with you. You're watching the same event but it's being hashed out elsewhere with other people you don't even know. <laughs> yeah, Sherry Turkle, one of my favorite writers, wrote a book called Alone Together, which I think really captures uh -huh. what you've been describing. Um, I think for me, I, I felt this also for the first time in 2016 when Trump unexpectedly won at the elections against Hillary Clinton. And I think nobody really thought this was going to happen. And there were lots of people sitting together in the living room. And I was surprised that nobody was talking. Everybody was on their phone texting. People were not there looking, looking for their own news information. Nobody was even looking at the TV. And I remembered when I was a kid, people always complained about the TV. And... On the other hand, compared to this, the TV is like the human bonfire because at least on the TV, everybody's watching the same thing together and talking about the same thing, not looking at individual screens and living in different worlds. 
Yeah, your term, the human bonfire, reminds me of the book Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, Tom Wolfe book. And uh, that might be relevant. I guess it's relevant in the sense of the power of uh, mass culture kind of co-opting our depth. And we're easily bought off and pursue vanities. (laughs) Vanity, oh, vanity. Yeah. So I I think you've written a a fine book. You're doing us a good service here. And uh, I'm glad you're out there doing it because it needs to be done. And um, Thank you. Yeah. Anything more that you want to say to as we wrap it up here? I, I think just my hopes for the book. I, I really, my hopes for the book is that it will, I think too many people feel powerless. My hope is that by looking at what can be done and how it, it's done on in small places, whether in your school or your school district or lots of laws, laws are local not even state level there's there's so many options to to be active and to change things and not to feel desperate like this is the way it is we're just heading towards this future and there's nothing else to do about it and the second thing is i and we started from that i love technology i'm not against technology i yeah. think what we, we need to do is to try to find a better balance here because it's this is too lopsided and if we keep heading this way you know with uh, the metaverse with uh, smart cities with we're heading into a very, very specific future. So there's something that happened, I think, with a pandemic that you can see clearly where we're going. And there's a window of opportunity to try to make different decisions. And I think we can make different decisions. Yeah. Well, that's a good, inspiring message to leave us with, uh, Gaia Bernstein. I want to thank you for being my guest today. Yeah, I'm so glad you've written this book and, and the work that you're carrying out. Thank you so much for having me. I was so pleased to be able to go ahead with my scheduled interview with public advocacy attorney, Professor Gaia Bernstein. There were many levels of uncertainty conspiring against our meeting, the biggest being the fact that I had been quite sick for the preceding six days or so and was not really recovered on our scheduled date. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice in the interview, and maybe even now. Moreover, I really wanted to go ahead with the interview with this fascinating and accomplished woman. I was fully prepared for it, however... My wits were not fully recovered. (laughs) I was challenged by the technical details of trying to set up the audio and video recording, despite the fact that I'm in my 17th year of conducting these interviews. True, there have been recent changes to the recording software, and I've only recently mastered it, sort of. Finally, I thought I had everything set up and we were ready to go. Only after it was over did I discover that the video recorder was not properly turned on. I had great audio, but no video. 
Not a biggie since years ago I discovered how to create a YouTube using a mix of audio and a static video image. But enough about my personal struggle with age, illness, and technology. And speaking of technology, that's the focus of this interview I'm trying to discuss. My guest, attorney Gaia Bernstein, has written a groundbreaking book on addictive technologies, and who better to discuss it with than myself, a longtime addict to the lures of technology, as well as someone who has, over the years, become aware of its dark underbelly. And that was all before highly trained neuroscientists were working to make it addictive, or more addictive. I'm happy to report that Gaia Bernstein and I hit it off right away. Her book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies, won't be released until the end of March 2023, which means I'm the first person to interview her about it, an exciting opportunity for both of us. She doesn't view technology as the enemy. She's not even against monster social platforms like Ultra, nay, Facebook, or gaming platforms like Fortnite. Rather, it's the size and reach of giant commercial entities and their often unchecked power to impact our lives and societies and governments, I might add. Also, their tendency to masquerade as totally benign, serving the public good only. In her view, there need to be legal checks and balances and regulations to make sure they do not cause widespread public harm. She finds past struggles against big tobacco, big pharma, and the Catholic Church, among others, to be instructive examples. I strongly agree and recommend some movies that really bring these messages home. For example, to be sure to see the 1999 movie with Al Pacino and Russell Crowe in which a whistle-blowing scientist's life is destroyed by his attempt to bring to light the fact that all the big cigarette companies not only knew that nicotine is addictive, but sought to secretly magnify its addictive impact. There are so many other wonderful expose films of this sort. The 1976 film, All the President's Men, about the Watergate Affair is another. The 2015 Academy Award-winning film, Spotlight, about sexual abuses by Catholic priests in the Boston area is yet another powerful one. Synchronistically, I happen to be watching these films again online, in the weeks prior to my interview with Gaia. By the way, I'm still under the weather, which has something to do with why I'm rambling here. Let me try to cut to the chase. Drawing from her bio, Gaia is a law professor, director of the Institute of Privacy Protection, and co-director of the Gibbons Institute for Law, Science, and Technology at the Seton Hall University School of Law. In her duties, there she writes, teaches, and lectures in the intersection of law, technology, health, and privacy. She's also the mother of three children who grew up in a world of smartphones, iPads, and social networks. 
Her forthcoming book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies, shatters the illusion that we can control how much time we spend on our screens by resorting to self-help measures. Unwired shifts the responsibility for a solution from users to the technology industry itself, which designs its products to be addictive. The book draws out the legal action that can pressure the technology industry to redesign its products to reduce technology overuse. Even though the book is not out yet, it's available for pre-order. I highly recommend it to one and all. The information in it is highly relevant for anyone who wants to be an informed citizen. I found our conversation to be lively and wide-ranging. I hope you agree. Dear Dr. Dave, this is Amanda calling from London, England. I want to say a big thank you for creating and hosting Shrink Crap Radio over the years. I've listened to hundreds of shows whilst travelling around London, and I love how each show provides deeper insight and understanding into the work and motivations of your guests. This invariably sparks a flurry of ideas to inform my own therapy practice. I hope my contribution to your show will help keep the recording equipment on and the interviews coming. Thanks again. Thank you, Amanda Thorpe, London-based music therapist, both for your sparkling participation as a guest and for being a financial supporter. Yes, you are helping to keep the lights on and to keep my enthusiasm sparked up. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to my guest today, consumer rights law professor and author Gaia Bernstein, for your important work and for discussing your book, Unwired, Gaining Control Over Addictive Technologies. Next week, my return guest will be Dr. Ed Tick, discussing his book, Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, oracles, and pilgrimage. He's one of my all-time favorite guests, and I'm thrilled to have him back on the show. Do join us then. Meanwhile, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.